Hey there, Scott here from Social Energy Presents, and thanks for joining us for another great episode. Our guest today is Harvey Lisberg, an English talent manager and impresario. Harvey got his first break at age 23 when he discovered the mega British pop band Herman's Hermits, who he agreed to manage. He signed the band to Mickey Most's RAK label, who produced the massive hit I'm Into Something Good. For the duration of the 1960s, the band enjoyed much success in the US and then again in the UK, and were a major part of the British invasion along with the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and many others. His next signing was the songwriter Graham Goldman, who wrote a string of hit songs including For Your Love, Bus Stop, Heart Full of Soul, and many others. In the 1970s, Harvey managed the British rock band 10CC, who enjoyed international smash hits such as I'm Not In Love, The Things We Do For Love, and Dreadlock Holiday. Harvey managed 10CC until the band finally broke up in the 1990s. By the turn of the millennium, he was consulting to the Indian Wells Tennis Garden where he spotted an opportunity to use their state-of-the-art arena to host music events and brought international acts such as The Who and The Eagles and others to the desert for the first time. And today, Harvey joins us from his home in California for a look back at his career and to bring us up to speed on what he's been working on next. So sit back, relax, and get ready as Social Energy now presents you with your Backstage Pass. Man, I'm so excited to talk to you. Yeah, you, you are just such an... What a legend you are. Oh, my gosh. I even believe it myself when I read it. <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, so are you in L.A. now? Uh, Rancho Mirage, which is like 10 miles from Palm Springs. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, it's a nice area. So are you a golfer? Um, are you... I started playing golf when I was about 52 and I packed it in when I was about 75. But I, I wouldn't call myself a golfer. I walked around the course and uh, I played <laughs> I soldier golf. They, they use me to clear out new fairways. I'm usually the guy in the bush with my stick yeah. looking for my ball. Well, I'm always going from one to the next. I got a good walk and then I got around and gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to enjoy it, though. It was fun. Yeah, well, you know, it's so funny because so many of my friends have like uh, a guy that I work with a lot, uh, Michael Sacoli, we've been friends since high school. And um, he is a Scotch golfer and he is just so good, you know, and he's he's done it all his life. And then a couple of my other close friends, or a lot of my close friends have picked it up and they get hooked on it right away. I've played golf enough that I think if I was going to get hooked, I would have been hooked years ago. And now I just sort of do it. It's one of those things where I'll do it. Uh, like I went out golfing with my father-in-law a couple of days back, and now I'm going out with him on Wednesday again, just because it's a fun get out, get away from me and him. And yeah, he, it's okay. I, I'm if you you see if you're competitive, uh, and I, I usually am competitive, but I realized early on that I could never get up to the standard that I want to do without a whole pile of practice, and I wasn't prepared to do it. My wife was a very good player; she got a hole in one at St Andrews. Which is bloody good on the eighth Holy hole. Smokes. Yeah, wow. that was a nice story. So I mean, she she was the golfer, and I I just was walked around and carried the bags off. I was joking. I used to I used to muddle around, um, but she practiced and she cared about it, and I just couldn't get into that passion that other people have. They they practice for five hours. My uncle played to scratch, 
and his wife, and when he died, I said to his wife, why was he such a good golfer? So I just played six hours a day, every day. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My wife's uh, uncle, um, Uncle Doug, a dear, dear man. He, we lost him last year, sadly. But he uh, he belonged to a, a local course here called, um, it was the Royal Colwood. So it actually had the Royal, you know, uh, thing attached to it where it was blessed by royalty or whatever it is they do um but uh, didn't trump he, get hold of it uh, oh, yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know his story he tried to get turnbury trump turnbury and he wanted to get the um he wanted it trump turnbury or something like that and the rule of ancient society of golf was just didn't want to know about. He wanted to have the open there. They just weren't interested. My my wife's uncle Doug. I mean, he, he a lovely man. He I think he belonged to the Royal Colwood Golf Course, which was basically across the street from his house for about 40, 45 years. But he did get he did get a couple of holes in one on the same hole. Wow. <laughs> within, about, within about five years of each other, I think he got his last hole in one about a year before he passed away. Actually. Carol, my wife, got three in different things. One in a tournament, one at St. Andrews, and one just playing normally. So Man, she, but she's she was a very, she was a good player. She played to about 12. So she she could, you know, you, you, she hit the ball straight, you know. So was, yeah, well, what's her handicap? Her handicap, 12, I say, was hers. Uh, Mine was like 24. I never got anywhere. Maybe I got to 19 once, but, you know. Wow. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Well, uh, so, uh, you have your book out now, and um, I'm into something good, which is uh, apropos title. Did you not come up with the title of that song? For, for... no, it's nothing to do with me. The song was written by Goffin King, Carol King, Jerry right. Goffin, but... and it was out as a record with Earl Jean '92 in the charts in America, and when it was played to me by Mickey Most after a long series of events which led to him offering the track but, but you, it's did, also, you did suggest the title of another song yeah heartful of soul heartful of soul of course yeah the and artists. funnily enough my wife came up with a nice album title for a band called barkley james harvest which is time honored ghosts which oh. is a great title so <laughs> <laughs> how, long, how long have you been married carol is your wife names correct correct um 53 years wow yeah and we got married on the same day as Peter Noon, who's been married 54 years. Wow. So you're in touch with them as well? To this day? Yeah, yeah, I'm in touch with them regularly, yes. Um, we're doing a launch next week of the book in LA, and he's going to come and play a few things there, I think. And Graham so, Goldman yeah. as well, I suppose? No, Graham's in... Uh... No, no, I'm talking about you stay in touch with him. Not really, no. Graham, Graham and I had our... Um, I don't know what you call it, party about three years ago. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's shameful. You guys had a long history together. 55 years. Yeah. But it's very interesting, you know. Um, I once was in Mallorca, and there's a famous writer called Robert Graves, who you might have heard of. He wrote I, Claudius. I saw his son, and he gave me a card, and he says, a good fr an ass is like a friend, a good friend. He went 30 years to give you a good kick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was... Uh, no, and Graham and I had a fantastic relationship. We are brothers, brother-in-law. And it's rather sad that it kind of went the way it went. But <laughs> I think 
every permutation of that has happened with 10cc, so I don't know if it's a disease of the band or what. Yeah. <laughs> and Kevin Law don't speak. Eric That's... and Kevin don't speak. <laughs> what was that? I missed that again. What you said? I said that I don't know if it's a disease of our band in particular. Kevin and I'll stop talking after 27 years being in each other's pocket. Uh, Eric and Graham, now, although they're always in partnership, there was no love loss between the two of them. Mm. And uh, what else? The other, well, it just goes on like that. I just think it's boring. Every band I was involved with, there was some kind of intrigue somewhere or other between the lead singer and the band or whatever it was. It, it just went on, you know. Yeah, there's something to do with genius, I think, you know. There's, I, do, I, mean, I think it's to do with ego. Yeah, well, yeah. ego and genius, right? <laughs> um, well, yes, it might not be genius. It might just be people get very... Um, highly opinionated about their pedigree. Right. I mean, Eric always mixed with Paul McCartney, Dave Mason, you know, really massive Pink Floyd guy, massive stars. And I think in his mind, he probably thought, well, I'm as big as them. But the truth is, no, we're not. That they are Elton John's and Paul McCartney's and they're all there. And then there's a the next lot lower down. We never got through to that. That was because of our own fault, possibly, and not taking advantage of opportunities that were given to us, possibly. Mm. Um, but anyhow, it's horrible talking about splits and all that, because it, A, it's boring, and yeah. B, there's always two sides to a story, so it's just not worth really just blurting out your side, because it'd be refuted or something, you know? Yes, of course, yeah. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really fortunate. The band that I've been working with, we've been together for 35 years now. That's unbelievable. And, and there's not many bands that can say that, you know, with no, with no, no changes. It's the same guys, you know. Well, is it, you're lucky they're all living. Well, <laughs> that, that, that alone is true. Absolutely. We've lost a lot of friends by the wayside over the years. Yeah, you know? Sure. Yeah. But, um, okay. I want to, I want, I want to get down into the brass tacks, but be, Oh, one more thing. We have a mutual friend, somebody who I was uh, producing during the whole COVID thing. And that's Barry Greenfield. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. I just knew it. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote a song for one of the things he did, you know. That's right. Well, we were working on the Auschwitz thing, and you you, you got heavily involved with that. I was producing that. Well, what happened was when I was in Israel in 1956, I met this guy called Shlomo Kovac, and I went on stage with him for a five, five gigs or so. He was like an equivalent of a, an orthodox uh, ultra-orthodox rabbi who played the guitar and had a following of a million people with sorts of pears and taluses and everything around them. And they had black coats in Israel charging the stage. And uh, it got me at it. And then I was writing songs. And I wrote this song for him. And I, I went to New York and I was in a restaurant. I, he was playing there. And I said, I've got this song. And he said, come on, Harvey, come on stage and play it. I was, I was really shocked. I didn't want to play on stage in front of a restaurant full of people. And I played it. So that was that. And then Barry did this thing. And I thought, it's so down. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's depressing is not the word. You're going from, there's nowhere to go. It's like they're saying, what happens to you? Everything comes well in the end. And no, it doesn't. You go in the ground in the end. You know what I mean? So this was the kind of action. I said, well, if only we could have something a little bit uplifting. So when they went through the gates out at the end of the thing, you heard this Israeli music that was like 
just gave it a little bit of a little bit of hope, not much, but just a so, little bit. So that that piece that we put in called the prayer, you actually wrote that? Yeah. Oh. See, it sounded like a traditional piece to me. I, I never realized that you actually wrote that. Yeah, Huelokainu. It's from the uh, a, 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 it's from a service that people say every day or every time they go to the synagogue. Yeah, well, it's a pretty it's a pretty incredible piece, and Barry's narration uh, voice is incredible. He's got an incredible narration. Well, he's a great storyteller, first of all, you know, just overall. Uh, but I've been to Auschwitz like five times in my oh life. my god. I, oh. I, I, I I had to. And what it was is I, I didn't go there necessarily for myself, but the first time I went, of course, I was shocked. The second time I brought another person that came. I was working in Poland a lot at the time. I would go over there once or twice a year for extended periods of time. So people would come and visit me. So I would take them to Auschwitz. And then it was always Auschwitz. We, we would go to um, Krakow, of course, go to Auschwitz, and then go to uh, the salt mines after because the salt mines, of course, are, you know, it sort of gets you away from the horror you just witnessed uh, with Auschwitz and Birkenau. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I I went there quite a few times. Each time I had a different experience, you know. I've always avoided it. Um, I've not even been to Yad Vashem in Israel, which I really should have gone to. Um, I think there's something about half a family got wiped out. I don't know. I mean, it's a real story. When I was um, younger at my grandmother's house, half their family all got wiped out and it was never discussed ever, ever. Nobody even mentioned any other family. They were just all gone. And um, I think that gave me kind of the attitude. I, I don't like watching it particularly. I don't. I mean, maybe I'm a coward. I don't know what it is. I mean, Graham went to Auschwitz a few times. I know that, and uh, most of my friends have been, but I don't. I don't feel the urge to go there. I quite like to go to the one in in Israel, though. I think that would be very beautifully presented, and it'd still be horrific. But I think it would be more interesting to me. Before before we move on, the one thing that my first takeaway, well, the first time I went there, of course, you know about them taking away their shoes and their possessions and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah. And of course, they've got all their shoes behind mm. this big glass wall. And and I walk and at, for some reason, you know, of course, I've, I've come to realize like we're further away from 1980 than 1980 was to World War Two right now which is a terrible thing to think about. I mean, 1980 seems like yesterday to all of us. Um, but when I was there, I was expecting like, I guess, hobnail boots or something like work shoes, all that stuff. And I walk in and I'm seeing these beautiful stilettos and multicolored really? shoes. Like it looked like it could have happened yesterday. And it wow. shocked me. It absolutely, I was like, oh, yeah. like that, that was the realization is, oh my God, like we're not that far away from this moment, you know? Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, yeah, I, I mean, my, my friend told me there's a TV series which I refuse to watch on Anne Frank. I said, I'm Anne Franked out. Mm. But my, my sister-in-law said, you've got to watch this thing. It's really good. It's on the BBC. But I just don't have any appetite for it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I'd watch it, but I don't want to. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, 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 I, I was never interested in history until I started working in Poland. And that's when it started. You know, it started coming up. The drummer in my band, Mark LaFrance, he said he loves history. And he was always telling me things. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then once we got there and you start immersing yourself in things, you know. Well, the thing here in America, as you know, it's Juneteenth Day today. Um, the history of America 
and the slavery and what happened is astonishing. And it's easy how history writes out what it wants to write out. So moving on to the bands, taking it to bands. Okay. Bands write out their management, whoever helped them originally, they're subtly left out. So your history for the next generation won't even know. And then on top of that, quite often they're maligned, like Colonel or Peter Grant or... no Nobody has a good word to say about managers normally. There are a few exceptions, like Bruce Springsteen, but they're, they're few and far between. So um, in a way, that was a, a relief for me to write the book from that point of view. At least I can give my side of the story mm. before I'm forgotten and put into oblivion. Well, <laughs> there's a music imp impresario. I wrote this down, Tony Wilson, because uh, he said uh, Harvey Lisberg uh, virtually invented modern management. In terms of the UK's music history, there really is no one quite like Harvey. Yeah, that's very nice of him to say that. He died yeah. very young, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I, got, I was friendly with him and I respected what he did. He was uh, he was an innovator, you know, factory records, the Hacienda, all those bands that came from Manchester. He was a he was a, certainly a visionary, to say the least. He could see ahead of the time. So any compliments from him are rather good. It helped me got my green card, by the way. Oh, yeah, I think I better read that somewhere. I was doing a little bit of, you know, I'm an alien of extraordinary ability. <laughs> that's that well that's what it takes to get in there you know so that's what I, it says on the green that's what it says when you make your application yeah yeah, yeah. well i i know that i at one point in my life i was actually thinking of getting a green card down there and there was a guy that was going to sponsor me and all that stuff and was, so i sort of know what the protocol is and you have to be something that's unique uh if, if well you know as long as you're not taking somebody else's job that's a good start and i think probably if you've got all the other ticks to go with it yeah. Uh, when we went to the embassy in London, you could tell this story because it's hysterical. I'm with Carol and we're both applying for green cards. And we're looking behind the counter and there's a guy reading this thing and he's tidying his tie up on everything. And he's he, and I'm looking at him, I think, because Carol had written a whole spiel about me, you know, meeting Elvis Presley, this, that, and the other Herman Sermits. And the guy was in awe of me. <laughs> I went there, he says, did you really do those things? I said, yeah. Accepted, stamp, no wow. problem. Well, it was, it's the truth. So uh, you met you met Elvis during the Herman's Hermits days, correct? Correct, in 1965. And it was he was gracious? He was lovely. He was, huh? We got to Hawaii after a long tour. And, um, yeah, we got an invitation. The Colonel Nervous would like to meet you and the hermits come down to the Polynesian village where we're filming and we'll meet you. And apparently they kept changing the time of the meeting, which I only found out a few weeks ago from one of the members of Herman's Hermits. I could never understand why there was only three of the band on the photograph. Myself, well, I'm calling myself one of the band. No, just two of the band. Myself, Peter and Barry Whitwam. I thought, no Carl Green, no Keith Hartwood, no Derek Leckenby. Why? Well, because they got fed up that all the time they were changing the meeting and they decided it was never going to happen. So they went back to England and missed oh. out the chance of a lifetime and probably really regretted that. And how did you find the colonel as a person? I know it's brief. Colonel was fantastic. <laughs> so maligned. He was a character. Nothing like the Tom Hanks portrayal in Elvis. 
nothing like that crummy accent that was put out. He had a kind of a sudden drawl, is what, what I can remember. And I met him and he says, ah, a fat Brian Epstein. And I thought, that's a great intro, a great way to start a, a <laughs> nice, relationship. Nice guy. <laughs> Where we, yeah, but it, the funny thing was, uh, Elvis Presley was like um, very, very good looking. Uh, he had white trousers, flip-flops, bare from the, and brocreen hair. And he had six henchmen, exactly the same, white trousers, flip-flops. So if he coughed, they coughed. If he laughed, they laughed. If he got up, they got up. It was a pantomime beyond belief. <laughs> no, it's the truth. And I got talking to him, and he was very, very pleasant, you know, very quiet, very, very nice. And I don't even know how well he knew of Herman Sermons, but he probably knew because of the British invasion. And going back to the Colonel, I got very friendly with him afterwards. I went to his 85th birthday party. He was invited to his 90th. And we had a great story with the Colonel. Um, my son on his 21st birthday, I asked him, what would you like to do? He said, I'd like to go to Las Vegas. And me being a gambler, I was totally shocked. I couldn't believe that <clears throat> that was what he would choose. And we went to Las Vegas and I said, well, I know the Colonel lives there. Maybe I'll give him a call and see whether we can go around and see him. <clears throat> so I phoned up at 9.30 in the morning and he said, oh, hi, Harvey. He said, I'm, I'm very sorry, I've got a dental appointment. But if it's quick, I'll call you back and we'll, we'll go there. Here we come around and see us. And I thought, oh, yeah, the typical brush off, you know, and I wasn't going to do anything. But we waited in the room. And sure enough, two hours later, the phone went, OK, Harvey, I'm ready to see you if you'd like to come around. Now I'm panicking because I want to have a limo. But in those days, every time I saw the colonel and he saw me, there was like five Cadillacs or whatever there was. You never went in your own car. God forbid you did anything normal. So <laughs> I phoned up the uh, limo firm and said, I want, a, I want a town car, but it doesn't have to be a stretch or anything like that. Just... Just a car that will get us there, but I need a limo. They sent this car, which was grey town car. It had bullet holes all the way through the side, through the back. It was probably used by the mafia, you know. And oh when we got God. to the house, I said, you can't park. We'll walk, park down the road. So we had to walk in 100 degrees oh because I didn't God. want to see this heap of a car. That oh, was that's hilarious. So, but so you actually kept a relationship with him for all those years, huh? Yeah, he. You must give him credit for one thing. He invented merchandising, as we know it. Oh, absolutely, no doubt. Every single act that earns every penny, and probably more of the, probably most of them earn more from the merchandising than the actual records or their appearances. It's you know really good source of income for huge bands, and he was the one that started it. Final story about the Colonel. He said that he had a date in Carolina or somewhere where it was pouring with rain. And the forecast for the next day when Elvis was playing before, I think, 30,000 people or something. And the colonel spent all night trying to find an umbrella manufacturer so he could sell umbrellas. <laughs> well, there was one takeaway from that movie, and I don't think it's a stretch of the truth, where he's got all this, I love Elvis, I've, all this stuff, and the, all these teddy bears and things like that. And then he had all the, I hate Elvis. Because mm. he figured, well, they're going to sell it. We might as well sell it too, you know? Yeah, no, it's very good. And the other thing he did with, I knew that he'd done with MGM, was after the film was completed, he asked the executive from MGM, by the way, 
You know that watch that um, Elvis was wearing in the film? Did you get permission to use that watch? And they said, no, no, no. He said, well, I want a quarter of a million dollars for the use of that watch. And if you don't, then just take the scenes out with Elvis, relate with that watch showing. Oh, <laughs> so my God. He's tough. Holy yeah. crap. That's unbelievable. Yeah. But I, when all, with all, when all said and done, without the Colonel, would Elvis ever have been Elvis? Who knows? Yeah, one never really knows. I mean, you were talking about merchandising and stuff, and that's one of the things where you know Brian Epstein. I mean, he, he I mean, he, he was so new to management. Uh, that's why we I were think, all new. Yeah, well, I, but but you handle it in a much better way. Uh, you know, I think you, you probably learned by his mistakes because one of the things with the Beatles, and, and I've heard this attributed to why the Beatles' popularity is still fairly relevant aside from their great music, etc. But they basically gave away everything, like Beetle boots, Beetle wigs, Beetle this. It was like they were they 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 didn't think it was going to last, and they didn't they'd never dealt with that kind of merchandising before, and they sort of gave it away. So people were still selling those things 20, 30 years after and making all the money from them. It's possibly true that. Um, but you learn from your mistakes. Um, I spent 20 years in the music business and anybody, any newspaper that would come on and want an article for Peter Noon or anybody, I'd jump at it. I subsequently managed Alex Higgins, who was a wild man of snooker, which I don't know how popular it is in Canada, but a really wild man of snooker. And he used to charge the papers. So they don't want an interview, I want 600 pounds. I said, you're joking. I said, yeah. And all the papers paid him. Each time he did an article, they paid him. Wow. Fascinating. Well, you think about it, the papers are getting things for nothing. The TV's getting things for nothing. Everybody's using, you know, in the footballer's case, they never paid them any money. They got a huge 70,000 people and paid them 15 pound a week. It was, and the record companies paid 1%, you know. In those days, there was a lot of exploitation on a grand scale, but it was subtle. Well, if you think about MTV, like, oh my gosh, they were getting all of their product for free because it was advertising. Yeah. And then they would they would sell advertising on top of it. What a moneymaker. Yeah. 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 Uh, these, these record companies just wanted a place for their videos to be seen. Okay, we'll give you a station, supplies. It's like, oh, wow, what a great idea. Yeah. But um, one one thing that really struck me is that in the height, I think it was like, maybe maybe it was very early on, but you were like 25 years old when you were pulling all this stuff off. You were yeah. really young. Yeah. And 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 if I if I read this correctly, were you you still kind of kept what we refer to as your day job? You didn't really get into full time management until a few years into it. Um, I I was an accountant. Uh, bored out of my mind and um, I was musical because I played the guitar and piano and wrote songs um, and I decided I needed to get a band to play my songs because wherever I tried to place them they weren't great songs there were songs on the level of I'm telling you now or you know the Freddie or the Jerry and the Pacemaker they weren't the classic Beatles they were the yeah, not saying stupid ones, but the the, the, mer the, mercy, the mercy beat feel. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was trying to do that. It didn't work. So that right, well, we'll 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 get our own band. And I got Herman's Hermits, of course, to do it. And I was still an article clerk, 
I got a university degree, so I've avoided three of the five years that you have to do to become a, an accountant. And I was in my fourth, my, my, probably my final year, so I was probably about 22 or 23. And then I'm, I have to get through my finals, and I've not done any work because I've been booking the bands and doing this, that, and the other. I was with a very nice accountancy firm that was very amenable to me being in the entertainment business, hobby-wise, because they represented the biggest agents in England, which was the, uh, the grade organization, which was huge, had every single celebrity you could name. And so they, they would, did the audit of the grades and they knew that, that it was potential. So I could go down to TV studio, the office manager would let me go off early to get there. They were very helpful that way. And um, I, I, just had, I just had the feeling that it was going to happen because the date sheet was getting fuller and fuller all the time and things started to happen. And then when I'm on a cram, so I go to a cram course to get my finals because there's no way I could have got them without doing any work. And while I was on the cram course, I'm phoning America to find out the sales figures that I'm into something good from the MGM sales force on a payphone that kept running out. And it was like, it got crazier and crazier and crazier. Well, finally, I said to my father, look, I've got to, I've got to make a decision here. I can always do accountancy later on. I had no intention of being an accountant. I always wanted to be a stockbroker, but that's another story. But to get to be a stockbroker, I was going to be an accountant first. All to do with gambling and stocks and shares and craziness. You know, that was that was me in those days. Um, so that's what happened, and uh, my father agreed. And the joke was, um, I wrote these songs, and my father always used to say, "Well, then maybe they're not that good." You know, the songs. And the Hermits, Herman's Hermits did as the B-side of I'm Into Something Good, Your Hand in Mine, which is a song I wrote with my ex-partner, Charlie Silverman. And when we got the first royalty check, which was £6,000, which in 1963 for a 23 year was a lot of money, I brought yeah. my parents a house. Yeah. And my father said, well, maybe, maybe they weren't that bad. <laughs> and I thought, but yes, they were. <laughs> well, you were you were smart to take the B side. I mean, gosh. Well, it was it wasn't so much that because the whole idea of me getting the band was they were going to do my music, and they did. We went to the BBC and did another song called "Only You," which has never been released. And um, so they had the songs, and Mickey Most needed a B side, so they did it. And I think the group were probably appreciative of the work I'd done to get them into a studio, get a recording deal. Everything was very positive from their point of view. Everybody that I knew was telling me what an idiot I was. What am I wasting my time for? What a band of rubbish. Give me a break and get on with a normal job. Well, so the first record goes to number one. And instead of all saying congratulations, oh, it's just a one-hit wonder. You know, that's what they got next. Yeah. And after about 12 hits, they shut up. <laughs> well, let's circle back here. Okay, so how did you... Herman's Hermits was your first act... Yeah. You, yeah. And so how did that come about? Were, uh, well, uh, I was what? trying to peddle my songs, as I say, to various people unsuccessfully. And I decided I want to get my own band. So I got hold of an evening news, which is the main Manchester paper. And uh, I said, look, I'm going to have a competition for bands. And we had a competition in the finals. This band was appearing at Collingwood, which is a suburb of Manchester. And I went to see them. They, in the meantime, had heard that management or somebody who was interested in them was coming to see them and it was at a time when everything was exploding around the Beatles and everything else was going crazy in Liverpool and I went there and uh, they were doing the usual set of numbers like 
Every band did the same thing. Chuck Berry, Everly Brothers. I saw her standing there. Every band did the same thing. It's just weird. And uh, after each number, their stage was charged by 50 screaming girls. And I thought, I've won the National Lottery. This is the band for me. I found out later that they'd planted people in the audience. They knew we were coming and they baked a cake. Wow. Uh, so anyhow, I went back to Peter's house uh, after the gig. I started playing the piano, just messing around on it. And he said, do I want to join the band? I said, no, I'd like to be a manager. <laughs> That's what happened. Isn't that something? And so what, what was the timeline between you meeting to them getting into a studio, to a contract? How quickly did it happen for you? And it's all less than a year, but it might be even less than that, something like that, you know. It started with them, got them the full date sheet, got them working, 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 and then got the uh, break when I went into uh, the uh, manager of a dance um, hall in Manchester where the gig was a lunchtime gig, which the boys were doing. And I found a letter on a piece of paper in his office from EMI. And EMI was a big thing, and the function of the manager was to get... A recording deal that was the main thing of all not even the song get a recording deal then you're on your way and i saw this thing and at the bottom it had derek everett the bottom signature on the letter and i said to the manager of the hall terry divine do you mind if i have that letter i want to try and contact this guy with a view to try and to get a recording contract so he said sure i wrote to derek everett a, a letter of total lies but very flattering to him how well <laughs> well, we knew him and we're looking forward to meeting him. He said, come down and see me. And just as I walked through the door, he said, Harvey, by the way, I've nothing to do with A&R. I just physically put records in dance halls for EMI. I've nothing <laughs> to do with it. And I, my face dropped. I must have been deflated to do this. Is, but but it, it, there's a new kid on the block. Um, have you heard House of the Rising Sun? I said, yes, yeah, fantastic. Well, this producer, Mickey Most, He's around. Maybe you should go and take the picture of the band to him. So I did. And that's how that got to him. And then he wouldn't show him the picture. Yeah, I'll come and see the band. And he didn't, obviously. And I decided to send him two tickets, airline tickets from London to Manchester, put him in a five-star hotel and say, would you come up just for one night to see the band appearing in Bolton? Took him to Bolton. He saw the band. He liked the band. He came with me back to the hotel and I had a Triumph Herald, an old clapped out car, which was my mother's. But I've invested in the first, I was mad on music. I invested on the first record player. It goes in a car, it was a Phillips, of independent suspension. If you put a 45 in, you go over a bump, it still plays it. So <laughs> this was a real gimmicky thing. So a lot of that stupid car, it's <laughs> Bentley type record player in the car. Wow. He said, I've got a record for you. Do you want to hear it? I said, Yeah, yeah, okay. Plus it in. I'm into something good by Earl Jean. And I thought, Oh, that is just fantastic. So he said, Well, as long as you get rid of two members of the group who can't play, um, I will give you a, a, a record this song with them. I then had the dilemma. I mean, the band had been working all that time with the band. I had to suddenly get rid of a drummer, get rid of the bass player. That's, that was not easy. And then we told uh, Peter helped me out on that. We went to his house and we told Alan Wrigley. Uh, we told the other guy, the, the drummer wasn't very good. It didn't really matter. I mean, he wasn't right. But Alan Wrigley had a wonderful look. He looked like Marlon Brando. Very nice. 
very fierce, very tough looking. Apparently his father was in jail for a capital crime. So you didn't mess with Alan, he was always tough. And I thought, how are we going to handle this? And then we told him he had to leave the band because we had no choice of that or we didn't get a recording contract. Anyhow, he dashed out of the rug in a temper. And I got in the car, the van with Peter afterwards. We drove out of his drive. And Alan Wrigley's lying across the front of the road. Lying. So you couldn't get past him. I had to swerve the car to get past him. That was his protest. And I was thinking in the next two weeks, not being a very brave person, but somebody's going to come with a knife. <laughs> I'm always looking over my shoulder in case Alan Wrigley appeared. Well, you can see, you can see why you'd, know, you'd feel that way. I mean... Yeah, I mean, it's a capital crime. It was a serious crime. Father was in for Well, I'm into something good. What a prophetic title. That was their first release. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. But, and, and um, it's interesting because I remember reading about, gosh, five or six years ago, the, the first song I ever remembered learning by Herman's Hermits was Listen People, and that was Graham Colvin's song. Now, that was in the film, and that's a wonderful story if you want to hear it. Sure. Um, we had a pokey office above a Chinese restaurant. The smell was, all you smelt was curry smells and things. It, it was really down market. You know, it was not overlooking Sunset Boulevard from the 15th floor. There was no windows. It was inside a building. And, you, and I go on a Monday morning and there's a guy with a cigar that's about two feet long, stood there in a seersucker suit and, and his mate. Standing around, he said, You are Elizabeth? I said, Yeah, yeah I'm Harvey Elizabeth. We want your boys for a film. I said, No, we're fully booked. We couldn't possibly do it because I thought, Well, a film's going to be two months, three months. And the date sheet was crammed. We just want them for two days. I said, I can't do it. There's no way. Um, we'll give you $45,000. I said, The money doesn't matter. It's not. Is there anything we can give you? I said, OK, we'll take a Cadillac. You got it. Before I'd finished the sentence. A bloody big white Cadillac arrived and we went and did And then the next thing, we had to do two songs. And we couldn't publish them because it was owned by the Gershwin Estate, apparently. They had the music in the film, so they published this thing. And they did this track of Listen um, People, which is a song Graham had written, and it, and it became number two in America. Yeah, it was a wonderful song. Well, I mean, I had the Herman's Herman's Greatest Hits album, uh, sort of by proxy. My brothers were much older than me. They had all the record collection and stuff, but I played that thing incessantly. You know, well, they, they had a, did a cover of Sea Cruise on it. And uh, there was well, this... Mickey Moses had a huge hits in America. And not, not America, I'm sorry, in South Africa. Before he started as a record producer, he was the most brothers in South Africa. And they had a huge hit with Sea Cruise. Oh, well, because I know... presumably was... published it. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Presumably, he published it. Oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, but like, what what a great array of songs and and Herman's Hermits came out at a particularly perfect time because they were sort of the antithesis of of the Rolling Stones. Peter Noon was like so sparkly clean and sweet. Uh, Every yeah. parent loved him. I tell that story. I say if a Beatles came around, the mother would look and think, "Hmm, I don't really like the look of that kid." If a Rolling Stones came around, she'd go right for the cyanide. Got to commit suicide. I can't tell that. But if Peter came around, blue-eyed, Catholic, good-looking, boy next door, JFK-like, great. <laughs> so yeah. we had that out of everybody. It was the boy next door. 
Yeah, it, it certainly was. And he was and he was so young. He was like 17 or something when they broke. Yeah, yeah. Every time we went to America, I had to go to Bow Street Court to get um, a license in loco parentis of taking a minor into America, because otherwise I wouldn't have got a visa. Wow. Can you tell me, can you tell me your story and uh, how, what was it like doing the Ed Sullivan show? It was weird. It was really weird. I mean, because he was, he kept making mistakes. I don't, I don't, there were so many mistakes he made introducing fans and it was, it was weird. It was, it was a very good, good show to get. And I remember going to the gig and there were lots of people, girls in the street outside. And it was a very big, um, very big, I, I can't really say I've got anything interesting to say about it, except I was rather amused that this is the biggest star in America who kept introducing people, <laughs> pronouncing the names wrong and getting there. I don't know what he did. I can't remember where he got us wrong, but he certainly got some other people. I, even like the Rolling Stones, I mean, it just introduced them incorrectly. It's so funny. And there was a big show. It was very good that we got it. I was talking with Felix Cavallari from the Rascals and his thing with the Ed Sullivan show, he says, he said he loved it because he, he actually paid the acts well. Like that's yeah, I'm sure I, I don't really, I mean, we were getting so much money at that time. I don't really, I don't think money was an issue then. I mean, money was like printing monopoly money. Yeah. Everything you did turned to her. Everything, every bet you did won. You just go through a stage in your life where everything goes right. And then you wait for the calamities that will come later on. And then when you get really old, the real calamities start. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Peter, he, he tours solo now, but there's there's also a version of Herman's Hermits touring, is there not? Yeah, there, there, there is. Uh, Barry Whitlam goes around as Herman's Hermits, and that's been going on. There was kind of a... When Peter left the Hermits, the Hermits, I think, had a law case with him or something, and they, they managed to retain permission to use the name or... Peter wasn't to use the name or something like that, but it eventually it all cleared itself up. And they, they go down around the world doing Herman Servant's music. And who's the singer? They have different singers. I mean, <laughs> the last time I saw it was somebody called Jeff, I forget his second name, who was a very good songwriter. No, the, 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 the songs were okay, but it wasn't. Um, Peter Nunes, so polished now, mm. he's just brilliant. I saw him a few years ago, and he's, he's, his act is so much better now than it was then. And he's got the patter. He's been doing it for years. Yeah. It's water I mean, off a duck's back. Is he as nice a guy as he appears to be? He's very nice. <clears throat> very impressed with him. He's, you know, he's happily married man, 53 years, what, 54 years. I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's nice. So he's, he's, so he's a settled soul. I yeah. think so, yeah. Yeah, which is great. So can, can we circle around now to you? Now, Graham Goldman, how how did you and Graham Goldman start working together? And I that's another thing that I was blown away at how young he was when he was writing songs like Bus Stop and No Milk Today and all these hits and For Your Love and all. It's like, holy smokes, what a pedigree. He had a, he had a pedigree like an, arm, an arm's length long, uh, like... 10, 10 years before there was even a thought of 10cc. Yeah, he's very, uh, he was in a band called The Whirlwinds, which is a very good band, uh, which played all popular songs and a lot of Italian music. And I always liked him, and I knew him from the Jewish Lansbury grade where he played in practice there. 
and uh, he was a great guitarist. I approached him, couldn't get through to him very easily early on because he had an arrogant manager who was terribly, terribly awkward. You couldn't get near the band. It was it was just strange. And when I saw it have some success with Herman's Hermits, I decided to revisit Graham and say, look, you've been going on for so many years. You're not really getting anywhere. You've not got a recording. Well, I don't think they had a recording deal. Really, you're going around in circles. Why don't you come with us and we'll try and do something? And then he did. And we started songwriting together. And we started, it was like nine to five every day. At his house, we'd write songs and do all sorts of things and work together. I was like an editor. You know, he's, do you like this? No, do you like, yeah, that's, keep that, put that away, you know, it's sort of bits and pieces. And then finally we had the brain where we will write a song on um, House of the Rising Sun chords, which everybody played, that played the guitar, ad nauseum. And he changed the last chord very quietly, surreptitiously, so he wouldn't really know. And he started out doing the For Your Love bit. And then in the middle, we said, well, come on, let's change the rhythm, try something different. And he got to the rock and roll part. And then his father, who's a playwright, wrote a whole pile of lyrics. Nothing to do, or I'm not saying nothing to do with Graham, but these were the lyrics from his father. They were terribly flowery. I didn't like them at all. But Graham did the stuff and put the lyrics down. And people sometimes ask me, how could a 17-year-old write lyrics like that? The answer is it didn't. It was a 45-year-old playwright. He's a bit of a genius that wrote them. And Jaime always came up with good ideas like No Milk Today. That was Jaime's idea from Milk Buckle, Art for Art's Sake, which is pretty well. You know, he was very, he, his lyrics were really behind the door to the classic of Tennessee's, uh, yeah, just a classic. Well, of, I, um, I, I heard that he wrote, Bus Stop Wait Day, She's There, I Say, Please Share My Umbrella. And, and the rest of it, Graham took from there. Yeah, but umbrella is the main word, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. umbrella is the word you don't think about. Yeah. And Jaime was very good at that. He used to say to me, you need an open sound at the end of it. He knew exactly what was going on with words and sounds, cellar door. And he could say an open sound at the end. He was, he was very, very clever and very good. I mean, very unfortunate he wasn't more successful as a playwright, but he lived all his success through his son, which was great. Mm. Now, I, I, um, I'm going to probably have to move on now to, to <laughs> I mean, your history is so vast. Uh, can you tell me some stuff about the Yardbirds? Because, of course, Graham wrote some hits for them, or a couple of Well, well For Your Love was the song, um, but um, For Your Love was the song that, I, when I, when he finished it, I said, I think that's the song for the Beatles. It's a number one. Let's get it to the Beatles. And Graham thought I was mad. Everybody thought I was mad. Well, I was mad, so let's leave it at that. But I was going to get it to the Beatles, whatever happened, because the Beatles were the band that I worshipped and Graham worshipped. And we bought the records the first day they came out and played them all day and night till our parents had heart attacks listening to the Beatles. Um, Anyhow, so I said to Graham, well, we're going to see them. So I got tickets for the Hammersmith Odeon. We went to see the Beatles there. And the publishers that published this song, because I was really green man. I didn't know what day it was because I was publishing or anything. And he was the publisher. And I said, can you get this song to the Beatles in the interval and let me know what they think of it? Because being a publisher, in those days, publishers are really powerful. You know, they were respected. Tim Finale was booming. 
And if you had a good company in Tim Finale, people listen to you. Like even with Barry Greenfield, you mentioned before, you know, you go to Tim Finale, you play the songs for the people there. Anyhow, he comes back after the interval, he says, do you mind if I play it to the Yardbirds, the opening act on the show? I said, I do one, yeah, that's for the people. Who the hell are the Yardbirds? I don't know the Yardbirds from Adam. I said, well, there's some blues group or something. No way. And he said, well, would you meet George Ogamoski, the manager who was originally manager of the Rolling Stones, owned the Crawdaddy Club, who had the house found the Rolling Stones, and then subsequently the Yardbirds. And he had a Russian girl, like that very deep voice, oh, you know, really deep Russian voice. Looked a bit like Rasputin with a beard down to here. And a really Russian. I mean, it was an incredible character. And he, he, he charmed me. He said, can I just try it? I said, yes, try it, God. Anyhow, Eric Clapton had a fit because it's not what he wanted to do. No. He was in the Yardbirds. He didn't want to do pop. He wanted to do blues, rhythm and blues. And he was interested in this band. He left the band because of that. And then Jeff Beck came in, another unknown. You know, <laughs> it's like it wow. goes on and on. That song on its own, could you could write a book on that song. And then The Heart Full of Soul as well. Heart Full of Soul was the... Uh, <laughs> That's been credited to me, I thought, of the title, which I'm very proud of. That's also the, represents that's over 50% of the song, you know, and I didn't get a writer's credit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that was the song I, I, I made a mistake on earlier. Uh, but uh, and I, now, talking about Herman's Hermits, now, because you were involved with Led Zeppelin's manager, but I'm trying to get a timeline here because there's a time where Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones played on Herman's Hermit songs, correct? John Paul Jones did the arrangement to all of Herman's Hermit's orchestral work. He also did all the work on Graham Gorman's solo album and was a very close friend of Graham. And Mickey Most obviously worshipped him. And then Peter Grant worked in the same office as Mickey Most. So they had both had chair next to each. And Peter represented a band called the New Vaudeville Band, the Winchester Cathedral. Right. And that was the number one smash at the time. There's no talk of Led Zeppelin then, but then he finally, he was also originally, I think, a road manager for Gene Vincent, I think. I'm not sure whether it was Gene Vincent or somebody else, but, and then I got very friendly with him in those days. Jimmy Page, not so much. Jimmy Page played on the records. Herman's Hermits played on the first record, I'm into something good, and subsequently, don't think played on many others. I think Mickey most used top session men from all over the place, mainly because of expediency and getting it done quicker, which was no credit to the band and also undermined their ability to develop musically, which is rather sad. Well, I remember, I, I've always wondered who did that opening 12 string riff on silhouettes. Because man, that was a tough lick for me to learn as a kid, boy. Yeah, well, I, it was either Big Jim Sullivan or Jimmy Page. It was one of the names. Because Derek Leckenby, I, I was playing the guitar and Derek Leckenby played this riff. And I said, I want to learn that riff. And I couldn't do that riff for love nor money. I don't know what it was. It was not that easy to do. And may, I don't think Derek did it. Derek Leckenby, I don't think he did. I'm not sure. But he could play it perfectly. I mean, he was really a good guitarist, Derek Leckenby. He thought the riff out to Henry VIII, which was very good, like a very tight riff. Now he, he, we, we had a good, we had a good team there uh, in our own. But I think Mickey just used the top musicians, 
drummers who played on every record, you know, and Jimmy Page, and all those people played the session musicians in those days. So, but Herman's Hermits as a collective unit, they were a good band. They could perform on stage because they were all very, they did a very, very good singer. And they were used all the voices, obviously. They had records, the voices were used. Um, but they weren't used as much as they might have been. And the music, when they wrote songs, they weren't encouraged, particularly by Mickey. You know, he wasn't, he was a genius at picking songs from various genres. He picked. You know, Dandy by the Kinks, David Bowie, Are You Pretty Things, Museum, Donovan, I mean, Hot Chocolate, Bet Your Life I Do, Jeff Stevens, Sentimental Friends. I mean, they were all a cross-section. It was never just one writer all the time. So you got that tremendous wealth of number ones through Mickey's ears. Mm. Yeah, well, well, it's interesting, though, because you were talking about... uh, Wasn't... Wasn't there a time when you were either approached by or you approached Queen for management? Yes, Queen were looking for management. And I I said to Peter Grant, who I was very friendly with, I said, look, why don't we put a bit in together? You manage the biggest rock band in the world for performances. I manage Herman's Hermits and 10CC. How the hell are they going to refuse us? I initially started getting Wimbledon tickets for Roger Taylor, who's a tennis freak, and I could get tickets for anything as one of my fortes, uh, useful as a manager. Um, and we went for a meeting with the four members of Queen, and um, Jim Beach was the accountant, myself and Peter. And we said we'd pitch to them. But Peter wanted them to be on Swan Song as well, which is a new label. Which that was, wasn't Led, that was Led Zeppelin's label, correct? Yes, and he yeah. wanted Queen on there. And they refused, they, they backed out of us. They said, no, we're not going to sign with you. They signed with John Reed, who they slung out after two years. And I don't know whether they slung, I don't know how they could have refused us, but maybe they didn't want to be on Swan Song. And I don't blame them for that, because mm. that was a new entity. It's amazing that, you know, here's the manager of 10CC and Herman's Hermits and the manager of Led Zeppelin approaching Queen saying, we'd love to take you on. Now talk about a powerhouse management team. Holy I know. It was impossible. It, I don't want to discuss the other reasons my, they might have joined John Reed, but it, put it this way. We were, I wasn't that upset because if I had taken them on, I would have had a hell of a time with 10CC. Because that Queen and 10CC were almost in competition at that stage, because Queen hadn't evolved as the... I mean, they hadn't done the Live Aid or anything like that yet. They hadn't become megastars. They were just stars. I'm glad you brought that up, because there was the One Night in Paris opera that 10CC wrote, and there's always been some controversy that maybe Queen kind of nicked that idea for Bohemian Rhapsody. It's hard to say. I mean, you could really analyse any piece of music or any song, I mean, Poor old Andrew Lloyd Webber gets <laughs> accused of God knows what, plagiarising classical music or God knows what. I, I don't look at it that way. I mean, you know, so what? I mean, we were influenced by the Beatles. Maybe we didn't steal directly. But if the Beatles hadn't been there, we wouldn't have been doing songs, structuring guitar type stuff, you know. Well, lately uh, there's been things coming across the internet and stuff where you can see where the Beatles nicked 
like there was the uh, oh yes oh uh, darling from uh, from Ricky Valens oh all sorts of things yeah. or Al Albert Albatross by Fleetwood Mac yeah. and you listen to Sun King it's like oh my gosh it's a direct rip um it was another thing about McCartney what the heck was the name of that song well he wrote Lady Madonna based around he found out that the very piano it might have been the Mrs Mills piano that was the famous piano in Abbey Road yes. and he had asked he had asked if if this song and I think one of the engineers was there that had done that particular song and he went, wow, that's such a cool piano sound. How did you get it? And they told him and he wrote Lady Madonna based on that. And it's basically a rip of that song too, you know? Well, yeah, it's, um, it's hard to write original music that hasn't been done before. Yeah. As they say, there's only 12 notes, right? <laughs> the country Western thing is the best. I, I had to get a country western song version done. And then we did a great song in Manchester. They're not going to accept country and western from, from Manchester. So I have a friend, Mark Jordan, who you might have heard of. Not the Canadian Mark Jordan, the American Mark Jordan, who used to be the MD for Bonnie Raitt. And, okay. and I said, you know, I've got this song. It's very simple. It's only three chords. He says, yes. He says, and the difficult ones here, I've got four chords. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's brilliant <laughs> <laughs> that's funny I've, 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 I've been working and writing with a guy recently uh john graham and he he often remarks that he only knows seven chords <laughs> but with, well, with, a, with know, a, I, my theory originally but with a capo he learns music, a lot more but <laughs> i love songs that are done on three chords like quesera sera it's just you know it's three chords it's nothing clever Oh, and, and think about Que Sera, Sera. There's a great, uh, when you go, um, uh, Baby, Hold On To Me by, um, uh, what's his name? Baby, hold on to me. Whatever will be to be. The future is ours to see. When you hold on to me. A a Eddie Rabbit, any, any money. Any money. And it was, he just took the words from Que Sera, Sera and put it to a different song. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting. There's rips everywhere. Um, I, 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 I got to talk to you about uh, Andrew Lloyd, Reverend Tim Rice. Um, now, you heard Joseph and the uh, uh, Amazing Te Technical Dream Code very, very early in its inception, and you always believed in it. But what happened? Would it, did it just go on too long and it ended up you weren't? No, no. I, they, they came up to me with a song called Any Dream. Uh, I Fancy You for Herman Sermons. That's how they came to me, came to the office with this demo. And I played it to Mickey Mouse and he rejected it and subsequently became a number one for Jason Donovan out of the show. And I said, have you got anything else other than that single? Oh, yeah, we've just done a performance of a musical called Joseph and the Dreamcoat. And I said, what, Joseph in the Bible? Yeah, yeah, Joseph in the Bible. And, the, uh, and uh, Tim Rice was Potiphar on it. And, there, and, this, and I thought, wow, the evangelicals in America are going to just lap this up. Brilliant. Yes, I'll take that. And I uh, went around 16 record companies. I was the most powerful, well, one of the top five managers in the world. And each head of each company rejected it. And not only rejected it, really insulted it as well. They, What's this? How are you, are you serious? This is just a load of rubbish. Anyhow, I thought there was something there. All the bands and all the songwriters who I'd managed were all laughing at me. So, you know, there's nothing there. What are you doing? And um, I just thought there was something there. So I said, look, 
I'll put you on a management development deal and pay them five quid each a week or something like that for Tim and Andrew. And they signed for two years. And during that, those two years, not very much happened. We got the rejection on Joseph. We got total rejection everywhere else. And they said, well, we're about to renew the contract for a three-year proper management contract at that stage. Well, we've done this album called Jesus Christ Superstar. And I thought, I can't handle this. You know, I'm in North Manchester ghetto Jewish community. And one of the, and I'm a big star, of course, because I'm managing pop groups and God knows what. I can't be selling Jesus Christ to this lot. They're going to go out of their minds. So that really influenced me to a degree that I thought, well, I'll, I'll let you go and look. We'll, we've left as good friends. And I always, uh, I went to see the opening night of Evita. Um, and uh, and um, Tony Christie was McGalding on the album of um, Evita. And I always kept in touch with Tim Rice. And he wrote, sent me the lyrics to a song in 2000 and something for Graham. And Graham did it, a song called Monk in the Onion, which is an extra, extraordinary song. And uh, to this day, I still speak to Tim. He's a, he's, a, he's a great character. Andrew is a perfectionist. And Andrew's one of those people, Paul McCartney-ish in a way, you know, had to, everything had to be spot on. I, I saw him every time I went to see Evita, and I saw it quite a few times. He's at the back with notes. And this is after the performance, it's sold out for 12 weeks, but he's still there getting it all together because he wants this fixing, that fixing. He was, a, he was um, I don't know, a perfectionist, you know, absolute perfectionist. What's, what was the timeline between you hearing of Joseph, the amazing Technicolor Dream Coat, to, let's say, because to me, their names uh, really came to prominence. We have 65 to 67. And 68, I think Jesus Christ came out, and probably 70, Evita, and maybe 71, sort of thing. Now, do you think because Hair was such a success on Broadway, that opened the door for Jesus Christ Superstar? I don't know. I don't, I, I don't really, no, I don't think that at all. No, I think Jesus Christ is a very good, a very good subject. If I'd have been Catholic, <laughs> signed them up, and I'd have been there, and I'd probably be dead today because I'd have made so much money that my excesses would have got out of proportion. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. It's a great subject matter, but it's like, you know, you were talking about how people were, um, you know, sort of turning down the Joseph thing. You know, uh, they could they didn't see it. People, record companies, about, they don't know that the people in record companies look they're pretty awful, really. They don't really know what day it is. I, I mean, well, the interesting thing was, I didn't know how big it was going to be. In fairness, I just thought, well, that should really catch on and it should become a standard musical. The schools that do it, I mean, the potential was obviously right. The lyrics were very, I mean, these are the. And it was pleasant. Okay, it wasn't the greatest thing since sliced bread, but they certainly turned out some great things later on. I mean, Evita, Phantom of the Opera, Cats. Yeah. I mean, that they took over. We did the British invasion on the music. They did the British invasion on Broadway. So, like the sixties and seventies, England ruled the world yeah, in entertainment. Yeah, good point. Good point. I I, I want to uh, once again circle back a bit, and I want. Where were you born? Salford, near Manchester. And uh, so, and that's where you went to school, et cetera? You spent your... Yeah, I went to school. I went to University of Manchester, yeah. And good student? 
<laughs> it's a hard question to answer. Uh, okay, yeah, I was all right. Yeah, yeah, I went. And, yeah, and you had good friends, a good, good a good childhood is basically what I'm going at. You you were close with your parents, etc. Yeah, I was only child, um, first born of a family, a massive family. My grandmother had nine brothers and sisters, and I was the first grandchild, male grandchild on that side. So I was totally smothered with affection from my mother. My father went to, in the war, he went to uh, Italy. So he was away, I didn't see him until I was about five or six. And um, I was impregnable in my own mind. I was so, I had so much love smothered on me that nothing was going to stop me. I mean, I just, just, I mean, I, I did things that people didn't do. I met Prince Charles as he was then, and 10CC had just done a concert with the Halle Orchestra. And I said to him, um, this is in 19, I don't know, maybe about 1980. It was actually the day, the week he started going, or was announced that Diana, wedding and now we were hoping she was going to come up and she didn't and we um in the interval i know after the show the owner of the theater i was a director on the palace theater trust and said would you like to meet prince charles we've got a little room we can come and meet him so i had a chat with him you don't ask questions of the royalty apparently it doesn't matter to me i said did you enjoy the show yeah, yeah yes i said i suppose do, do you like to see well I've never heard of 10cc, so I carry on the interrogation. I said, well, don't you listen to Radio 1? He says, no. He says, I sometimes listen to the radio. I don't get much chance to listen to the radio, but I do listen to Radio 4 on my way to Ascot. And I thought, the future King of England does not know 10cc, does not know I'm not in love. One of the biggest exports in England must have been music. And there was the future King of England. But I think Diana sorted him out. <laughs> yeah. Well, the and, and I'm not in love. You know, you mentioned that. Oh, my God, what a masterpiece. I'm still blown away with that song and how they went about recording it. Uh, just that whole thing. And, and even the fact that the drums aren't actually drums. It's just a Moog synthesizer with a pulse, you know. Uh, it was genius. Just everything about that song is absolutely uh, perfection. And I I've, heard it for the first time unmixed in the studio. And I knew after about 20 seconds, it was something extraordinary. And then when it had finished, my only thoughts as a commercial manager was, that's a bit long. <laughs> you know, how, the, how the hell are we going to get that played on the radio, which only had three minutes for track? Three minutes, three minutes, three minutes. Anyhow, we managed to overcome that. Yeah, no, it's 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 amazing, and and uh, and Goldman, what what a genius! Like what a genius! Well, all the all the guys in in Ten CC were, you know. Oh, absolutely! You couldn't decry Kevin Lowell's contribution. It was astounding, and uh, they wrote beautiful songs from when we signed them up in 1964, ten years earlier. And I mean, their songs were even then were magnificent, and they did lots of recordings pre Strawberry Studios where they acted as session men. And they put records out, and none of them seemed to happen. And then it all evolved through Neanderthal Man, which was unusual to say the least. Then Donna, everything stopped, and then they got into their normal pattern, turning out masterpieces. Mm. 
Yeah, just absolutely incredible. Like it's amazing these groups that you've you've managed, and uh, there were groups that were just so important to people like me. Like you know, through my musical development, you know, unbelievable stuff. But well, I, I think I, if you analyze it, Ten CC were a critic's favorite, but they weren't in the A1 division I was talking about before, basically because they didn't concentrate on that image or worry about the image. All they cared about was that the sound was perfect in every concert. And I think the sound can be bought on record if you want perfection. You want a performance when you go on stage. So I always thought of Freddie Mercury and, you know, Lol had a good personality. It could have been worked on. Kevin Lol were geniuses at videos. They had all the artistic ideas if they'd incorporated that. And then then coup de grace was when they turned down the Eagles tour as opening act. Oh, um, no, when, no. The, when I'm Not In Love was like moving up the charts, the album. And that would have bust them into the stratosphere. But they refused to go on as an opening act. The only time they ever did an opening act was Nebworth. Wow. I sort of curated some pictures off the internet. I was hoping you could comment on them. Is it, do you have some time? Yeah. Great. Okay, I'm going to share the screen so hopefully you can see this. That's myself and Peter on the Bahamas on holiday. Um, you know, this is a nice picture. How, how old would you guys have been there? Probably 26. And Peter would have been... 17 or 18. Incredible. That's my wedding day to Carol. That was the 5th of November, 1969. That's Peter kissing her, and that's Peter's wife, Mireille. And, and you're all still together? Yeah, and we both got married on the same date. Yeah, you were saying a year apart. Guy Fawkes Day. Yeah. Right, that's Jonathan King on the left, myself. 10cc, Dunn Wardell in the background uh, behind LOL. Uh, that was just, uh, you know, in America, I think, just, a, and just a, a photo of the band after we've had some success. It looks as though LOL's carrying some kind of a, maybe it's just a drink. No, I, th no, I, I, think, it's, I think it's just a drink, yeah. That's what it looks like here. Yeah, yeah. And next? Oh, yeah. That, that's <laughs> Graham and Andrew Gold. And Eric, there's there's another talent, Andrew Gould. Oh my Pretty gosh, oh. Yeah. incredible! A multi instrumentalist and some of the greatest songs. I mean, I, I mean, I I loved uh, Lonely, Lonely Boy. Boy. Lonely Boy was just yeah. stunning. What a stunning song! So was Thank You for Being a Friend. Oh, absolutely! Well, yeah, that was his biggest hit. But uh, yeah, I, I absolutely. Just amazing stuff, and 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 of course him and Graham had that uh, that project together, and uh, yeah, they did together. But Andrew initially was a producer for for Ten CC. He was. He, yeah, he produced some tracks on the album Warner's I, album later on. Yeah, I that's didn't how know it all that. started. I didn't know that. Wow, that's that's something I didn't know. Oh, and uh, oh, here we go. That's very very early days. That's Peter Noonan. Side of 16, left Barry Whitworth and Keith Hotwood, Peter Noon, Carl Green, Derek Leckenby with glasses, unfortunately died young. What happened? Oh, some kind of a cancer, I think. He died at a very young age. I don't know, he was under 50. It's very sad. Yeah, no kidding. Right, that, so after 10cc split, 
There was no communication between the band at all. Um, Kevin Lowell went their way, Graham Eric went their way, and I had the idea to put them together for a video when Eric and Graham had done Feel the Love, a track. Uh, and I said, why don't we get Godly Cream to do the video? Because they're the best video people in the world. And we went to Shepparton, we did this track. It was a wonderful summer's day. And it was the first time I'd spoken in probably 10 years or something or whatever. That was really exciting. And what year would this have been, Pastor? So it must have been about 81, I would think. Something around there. Something okay. around... Hang on a sec. Do you know what year the photograph of myself, Feel the Love? What year was Feel the Love? Can you look it up while I'm talking? Okay, I'll let you know in a minute, okay? Great, thank you. That's the last night of um, Herman's Hermits, when they decided we're finished, they're all going to part as friends now. On the left-hand side is Graham Goulman, extreme yeah. left. That's his wife, Susan, who is my sister-in-law, my wife's sister. The next one on the front is Carol, my wife. I'm the one grinning like a Cheshire cat. 1983 was the Feel the Love. That's okay, thank you very much. Uh, Barry Whitworth is there. Then Mireille is sitting on Peter's knee on the front. Carl Grease is the one with massive hair. Peter Carr is a wonderful songwriter he used to manage who took over from Peter, leading the Hermits. Behind him is Lenny Leckenby, and Leck is behind that. John Wright is a friend of mine from early accounting days, became the secretary of Herman's Hermit Sign Club, traveled the world in, you know, when I needed somebody sensible to be there. And the other one is Keith Hotwood, and the top right is uh, Derek Leckenby's brother, Colin. Wow. You've got a great memory for all of this stuff. Right, that's that's me in New York looking like a lunatic. Carol in the leopard skin suit and Graham and Eric, Eric looking out of it and Graham on the left. Uh, here's our friend. I think it's time I moved to Carolina. I'm sorry, <laughs> what's that? What's the first line of Sweet America? I think. Oh, right, right, of course, yeah. Sorry, I just, I didn't, I didn't hear it cut out for a second. I think it's time I'm in Carolina. Yeah. Or something yeah. like that. I think so. Yeah. Barry. Yeah. Yeah. He's definitely written some good songs, that boy. Really has. So me looking at Presley direct, with Peter in between us, the one with the hat on the front is Colonel Parker, Barry Whitwam is on the extreme right, and the other guy with the hat behind is Tom Mappet from Tapeway, which is a radio station in Hawaii. Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, now, your book is available everywhere? I would think so. But we're talking Canada, definitely. <laughs> I mean, it's, I seem to be doing a preponderance of Canada broadcast, which is it's good. I like Canada. And, and what, Which part of Canada are you in? I'm in Victoria on Vancouver Island on the West Coast. Oh, you're, you're on the West Coast. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So you, you, it's a nice town, Vancouver. Yeah, well, I, well, I'm in Victoria, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I was going to say, uh, one person I didn't mention, and it was, he was very, very early with Strawberry Studios and uh, 10CC was Neil Sadaka. Yes. Okay. Um, well, I was I always loved Sadaka when I was a teenager. So that was in the 50s. And um, I got to know Donnie Kirshner through, who published I'm Into Something Good. And I had a relationship with him. And... Um, 
I went to his office in the Brill Building and I said, whatever happened to Neil Sedaka? Um, the Beatles have killed him stone dead, haven't they? Mm -hmm. So he said, well, yes, he doesn't have any success on records, but he's upstairs. Do you want to meet him? So I said, yes. So we went up to this room upstairs and he's playing on a piano and he plays us four songs, which are, I didn't like at all. They played a fifth song and thought, that's fantastic. I've got an artist called Tony Christie. Sounds like Tom Jones. That's perfect for him. And that was, is this the, is this the way to Amarillo? Went back to England, got it recorded. Tony Christie got in the charts about number 18, which was a disgrace. Should have been much higher. But anyhow, 30 years later, things happen. Uh, there was a charity record and uh, it came out again. And it was the biggest record in England. It was number one for, I think, nine weeks. And uh, that was Tony Christie. And that was at Sadaka. Now, Sadaka got success with the first record version, which got to 18. He decided with um, Johnny Kirshner, we'll go to England and we'll try a few tracks with these kids in the studio. They're good. And he was going to do three songs. He ended up doing two albums. Wow. And, the, and that's where the music takes me. Solitaire. All those hits that were subsequent hits in America were all done with 10cc backing on his original albums. Love Will Keep Us Together, was that part of that too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, which became a huge hit for Captain Neil, yeah. Everything, wow. yeah. Amazing. Harvey, it's been fantastic talking to you. Gosh, I, I, I honestly, I could talk to you for another two hours, but I, I know you probably have to go. But holy smokes, like... I, I, I hope that one of these days we can continue this conversation because there's still... Yeah, I, need to, I, I don't mind to do it again. Yeah, maybe just concentrate on certain areas that you want to do, you know, yeah. as opposed to trying to cover everything. It's it's yeah. difficult because there's so much in there. There's a lot that we've missed out as well, so we could always talk. And then I can go, and we've missed the whole who thing, but we can do it again sometime. But, I mean, right. you know. Well, give us a snippet. <laughs> tell, tell, tell us something about the who. Uh, get a phone call at 2.30 in the morning in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, no, I was in Montgomery, Alabama. And this guy said, are you Harvey Lisberg? Yes. Said, are you the manager of this tour that's going around Herman's Hermits and the Who? I said, yes. Uh, can I help you? I was playing cards at the time, 2.30 in the morning with the boys in the band who used to play cards after a gig. He says, well, I, I have to tell you that in Mr. Moon's room, there's no toilet anymore. I said, I said, what do you mean there's no toilet? He said, well, put it this way, the toilet's not attached to the wall. <laughs> so I said, what do you mean? He says, the toilet is on the floor and there's water everywhere and there's this, that, and that. I think we got banned from holidays for a while. Meanwhile, Keith Moon had been dropping cherry bombs down the toilet <laughs> and, and took the toilet off the wall. They're like a small stick of dynamite almost, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Oh, we used to, whenever we were on tour, we were in this big bus. You could hear bang, bang, bang. He was throwing them on the road behind us. Mm. He was a wonderful showman, a great drummer, but a little crazy. <laughs> that's the story of the hoops. Oh, my gosh. That's, that's hilarious. Well, thank you so much, Harvey. I really appreciate your time, and uh, and thanks thanks for everything. This has been a fantastic interview. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. I've wanted to meet you for years, and uh, this is great. Thanks and a lot. You see Barry give him my regards. I will. I'm actually going to call him probably today. So I will. Okay, then. Speak All to right. you soon. Cheers. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks for joining us. Check out our many other episodes and vignettes for more great content. And please like, share, and subscribe 
and become a member at socialenergypresents.com to access all our content and earn valuable energy points just for watching.